Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. This is episode 37, a conversation with Dr. Beverly Zavaleta, who is a breast cancer survivor. I hope you enjoy today's episode. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude Podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. So hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. I am here today with Dr. Beverly Zavaleta, who is going to be talking about her journey and her experience. Welcome, Beverly. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this chance to sit down and have a dialogue. So can you start by just giving an introduction to who you are, um, what your background is, your training, what you do now, and then we'll kind of get into your breast cancer journey. Yeah, so I am a uh, family. My work is that I'm a physician. I'm a board-certified family physician, and I practiced family medicine for many years, had a practice, and then I transitioned to doing hospital medicine, and I practice as an adult hospitalist. I also do some consulting kind of administrative things. And uh, I live in Brownsville, Texas, which is on the border all the way down south. Um, I'm married. I have two teenage boys. I, uh, I'm also an author. I recently published a book called Braving Chemo. And I want to hear all about the book and what went into it in a little bit. For those who are not familiar, can you talk a little bit about hospitalist medicine and just what that actually means? Yeah, so hospital medicine is uh, just turned 20 years old. It, uh, I'm a, a generalist hospitalist, meaning um, it's practiced by internists, internal medicine physicians and family physicians, as well as pediatricians. Um, and the practice is based at the hospital without an office practice. So I'm the other half of medicine to primary care doctors who want to focus their practice just on the office. So the way that uh, I've worked for a couple different groups, but the way that uh, these groups have generally worked is that we take care of patients who are admitted to the hospital, take care of them during their hospital stay, and then when they're ready to go home, then their care is returned back to their primary care clinician, their physician and nurse practitioner who takes care of them um, on a continuity basis. We also take care of patients who don't have a doctor. So they come into the ER, they need to be admitted, and they, but they don't have a doctor. So then we'll take care of them. And then we try to hook them up with somebody who can then take care of them going forward as, as a primary care clinician. And you used to work on the other side, right? So you used to work in the office. How has that transition been? So when I practiced, when I started in practice, I spent five years 
in the traditional model where I saw, so, so all models are still in play. In other words, you have still many physicians who practice both office medicine and hospital medicine, and that's what I did for several years. And then I spent a couple of years where I focused on just office medicine, and then I switched gears and now I'm doing hospital medicine. I think um, transition was a little rocky because I missed, frankly, I missed the continuity with the patients. Um, but there are other advantages. I think in, in the hospital, the patients are sicker. So there's, in terms of professional, sort of from a purely kind of medical professional standpoint, I, it's certainly never boring when you have patients who are a little bit sicker than in the office. Um, and then you can always establish a connection with somebody. I mean, it, it can take only a few moments to have a conversation and listen to somebody's story. So I would say that one of the things that I learned to do was to do that quicker. And when people are hurting, whether, you know, the patient is hurting um, or, you know, um, struggling, the families are struggling, they need somebody to do that, whether that's over years or, you know, months or years in the case of being primary care or whether that's just a few days in the hospital. So the, in other words, it's, it's the same process. I just had to shift gears to learn to do that in a little bit of a different context. So so anyway, I hope that's kind of what you were going for. No, exactly. I mean, I think that a lot of those terms are thrown around a lot, right? Hospitalist. And, you know, we see people in the hospital all the time and we'll say, oh, well, the hospitals will come by and, you know, people don't actually know what that means. So I think that was a right. great explanation to just, yeah. I like that you're kind of saying it's still the same. You're just getting to know them in it differently, but you're still building those relationships, which is really right. important. I, I like to think of it as the the hospitalist, be it a family medicine trained or internal medicine trained, we are the primary care of the hospital. And, and so if, if you keep that mindset, it, it helps the hospitalist be more effective. Um, so that's how I like to think of it. That's great. I haven't heard of it like that. And I, I really think that's just the best way of, of summarizing it up. So let's talk a little bit about your diagnosis of breast cancer how you found out, what your initial thoughts, reactions were. And I'd really love to hear your perspective on this as a physician. I was a high-risk, I was part of a high-risk screening population, if you will. I had a lot of benign breast disease, even from my teens and 20s. I had fibro, something called fibroadenoma. Um, that is a benign tumor for your mm -hmm. listeners. And so I had had excisional biopsies done in my teens. And once it was determined that that's what it was and it was benign, I just had regular screenings. And this is when I was moving around for college. And so I would, every, when I moved away to college and then subsequent moving around for job, you know, work and at school and such. Everywhere I moved, I would establish with a surgeon or a breast center and get a yearly exam. And then eventually ultrasound was uh, added into that. And I was, so I have spent my entire adult life 
with this screening being part of my routine. And then when I was 35, I can't remember exactly, then mammograms were incorporated. And I needed to have several biopsies. And I think I probably had every type of biopsy possible. I had ultrasound guided core. I had a CT guided core. I then had another round of excisional biopsies and everything for years on end, everything came back benign, but it was all concerning enough. And as I was aging and over 40, it was concerning enough to be followed and biopsied. So the context of all of this is important because even though I was a physician and frankly, by the time I was living here in Brownsville and practicing, I was actually, one of my colleagues did one of my breast biopsies, the radiology group who, Brownsville and, and the lower Rio Grande Valley, it's, it's kind of a big small town down here. And I was comfortable, it was going to the group that I also worked with them. And so it, 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 it felt in some ways routine, yet at the same time, um, you could think, how could that possibly be routine? I mean, these are the things that stress people out when they have abnormal lumps and bumps and they, and it could be cancer and they go get the biopsy. I mean, this is the stuff that is just nerve wracking for people, but I had been through it so many times that it was like going to get the oil changed on my car. I mean, it, it was like, Oh yeah, I got to go do that again. So then when finally, I think it was the seventh biopsy came back as cancer. It blew the top of my head off. I couldn't believe it. I was, it was, it was just as surprising to me as I think somebody for whom it was all completely brand new and they had never seen any of it before because I, it was like I had been lulled into complacency by all of, by everything always being nothing. And so, so the point of that story is just that even though I was a physician and even though these were my colleagues and, and friends who were helping me and it, and I had become used to it, I was totally blown away. It, I, it was like, it was a bomb going off in my life, just like it is for everybody. <laughs> no, I, I think that's the best way to put it, right? I think no matter how prepared you think you are or may not be, or even if you are a doctor, I don't think there's anything that prepares you for being, for becoming a patient. Right. So I was do diagnosed. So my diagnosis was uh, triple negative breast cancer. That was the, the tissue diagnosis that I got. And I um, had more scans. I had an MRI. Um, it looked, uh, there looked to be, I did not end up having any lymph nodes biopsied at that time, but it appeared to be stage two based on the size of the tumor. Uh, lymph nodes appeared to be negative. And because it was triple negative, the first step was to go directly to chemotherapy, which is the most common, not always, but the most common treatment plan for triple negative is to do the chemotherapy first. Absolutely. And I I I apologize. Did you no, no, no. That? You're absolutely right. Um, you know, and I think sometimes what I want to stress is the reason that we do upfront chemotherapy for triple negative cancer is because sometimes people 
question, well, why don't you just take it out, right? I mean, if you found the cancer, why not get it out? And some of the reasons to do triple negative breast cancer, I mean, to do upfront chemotherapy for triple negative cancer is one that it is an aggressive subtype. So if there are, if there is any microscopic disease that's left the breast and somewhere else in the body, chemotherapy, which is going to go to the whole body is a way to take care of that microscopic disease. But we also know that it gives you um, a really good assessment of whether the cancer, how it's behaving biologically. So if you give chemotherapy and it all goes away at the time of surgery, that's a good prognostic sign. And if it doesn't, then we have additional treatment that we can add on after surgery. So there's a number of benefits to why we do chemotherapy beforehand. That's exactly right. So that that was the conversation that I was that I had with my oncologist at the time, and I I met with the surgeon, the oncologist, and the plastic surgeon, and had a port placed, all of in about the space of about ten days. And I'd have to look at the calendar to be exact, but I want to say it was two weeks from the time I was di- from the time I got my biopsy results to the time I had my first chemo was maybe 14 days. So it was it was like being hit by a truck, <laughs> and then and then just you know, and then being thrown on a moving train within 14 days. So um, I I had some. I mean, I had some complications and whatnot along the way. I don't know if we need to get into those. I don't uh, if your if your listeners are interested in all of that. But um, the chemotherapy was four months. Um, I did dose dense uh, adromycin cytoxin, which is a very common regimen. So that was every two weeks for four treatments, and then I did. 12 weekly treatments of Taxol with carboplatin every third week. So I used to think of that as like the turbo, the turbo boost every, every third week, which this was in 2015. And at that time it was not standard. I think it's a lot more standard now. Yeah, the data on upfront, you know, carboplatin keeps going back and forth. um, and, And there's no, there's some reasons to do it. There's sometimes we don't do it, but it's, it's kind of just kind of the pendulum keeps swinging. I know that when we had talked beforehand, you mentioned that you did experience some neuropathy from the chemotherapy. I, I had pretty significant. So during the chemo, I had pretty significant uh, anemia and uh, leukocytopenia. I had to do everybody usually during their um, AC treatments does the uh, new Lasta shots, but I had to continue with daily Nupagen for um, three to four shots every cycle uh, because I just, my blood counts wouldn't tolerate it. So that was one thing. Um, But then at the very end for the last month of it, I started to get neuropathy and I got pretty severe neuropathy that didn't start to improve until after I, about a month, even two months after my surgery. So we're talking three to four months later. And that wasn't until I started acupuncture, actually. Okay. And 
can you talk a little bit about how you got into acupuncture? Was it something that your oncologist recommended? Or I'm just always curious because we know that it really helps with neuropathy, but I'm always curious as to how people kind of start entering into that space. Right. My oncologist did suggest it. I had tried a few things before that. I had tried gabapentin, which was not effective at all. I had tried, uh, my oncologist put me on vitamin B6, which also was not effective at all. She also had had me take glutamine powder all the way through my chemo um, in order to prevent mucositis, which is mouth sores, as well as to try to prevent the neuropathy. But since, and she had me continue it even though I was getting the neuropathy. So then when none of these other things were, were working, you know, had been sufficient, um, it, it, it really, so, so let me back up a second. So I started getting it barely the last, it was about the last three treatments. So really just the last three weeks. So the chemo itself was over, yet my neuropathy was still getting worse, which is not that uncommon. You're right. And I mean, so, I hear a lot of people who tell me that their neuropathy worsens after they finish their chemo. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> um, so then when I saw her, so then I, I got pretty busy because I was focusing on having my surgery done and busy with that, caught up with that, follow-ups with surgery. So when I saw her again, which was maybe two months uh, ten, eight to 10 weeks after the last chemo. And I still wasn't doing well in terms of neuropathy. So I could, I could maybe stand up like two hours a day total in terms of so much pain and numbness. And I could, I could function around my house. Like I could, I could take a shower, I could get dressed. Um, I could drive my kids to school, but I, I, I really couldn't, for example, cook because standing in one place at the stove or to stand and cut vegetables would just, I mean, it was excruciating pain. I mean, that standing in one place was honestly the worst thing. So that's when she said, well, try acupuncture. So once I started it, I did six weekly treatments and that was what really jump-started me improving. And then I was able to continue to improve, increase my walking distance. Um, and, and then I was finally able to start to go back to work at the end of May. So that was already about seven months after chemo had stopped before I went back to work. So talk about the period, you know, you're done with your treatment and you're still not able to go back to work. And that's something that really people struggle with is that what to do in that time frame because there's a lot of self-imposed feelings that people tend to place on themselves when they feel like they can't go back to work. And I'm curious to know what your perspective on that was. Well, I knew I couldn't go back because my body was just too broken down. I mean, I, I knew, and some of it was the, the type of work that I do because um, it's a long shift. It's a 12 hour shift and it's um, uh, very, it's time sensitive work. In other words, you have to complete all the work that there is to do that day. 
and not every job is like that. Some jobs, um, I think, I think a job that maybe had more sitting for one or where the work is more flexible, like you, where you can choose, oh, I can do this today and that tomorrow, or if I feel a little sick, I can go home early. So some jobs are, are more amenable to like a graded return. Mm -hmm. But in jobs, like if you, if you work a construction job or you're a police officer or a nurse, you know, working at the hospital. So some of these, some of these jobs that are like, you have to be like any job where you, there are lives on the line or what have you, you have to be a hundred percent or, or you can't go back. So I just kind of want to put that out there to people that, you know, uh, for those types of jobs, first of all, there's, I mean, there shouldn't be any shame in just saying like, my body is just not ready. So I, I personally did not feel shame or guilt about it. I just felt like, yeah, there's no way. Like I, I fully recognize that when I go to work, people depend on me, the, the patients depend on me, but so does the staff and my coworkers. Like, so I, I didn't, so I didn't feel guilty. I will say though, that, um, I felt, I mean, I felt sad. I didn't enjoy my body being broken down. Mm -hmm. It's, it feels, um, helpless. It feels, um, uncertain because I, you know, I didn't know how much better I was going to get. I didn't know how much longer it was going to take. Mm -hmm. um, I was a little bored. I mean, I, <laughs> I listened to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> in fact, um, as I started being able to walk, I would go for walks and I would listen to podcasts and I would listen to music. I did a lot of yoga. I tried to do yoga every day, even if it, even if it was a routine that was mostly sitting because that was all I could do. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I wrote a book so <laughs> because that was also something I could do. So, uh, which is not, I mean, that's not what everyone should, I'm not saying everyone should do that, but I think though some people, a lot of people find that writing is very therapeutic. So for some people, that might be a good thing to do. So, um, so let's talk about the book. Tell us what it's about, how, what spurred you to start writing, how the writing process was like. The book is called Braving Chemo, What to Expect, How to Prepare, and How to Get Through It. It is a concise, practical guide to helping yourself or your loved one get through chemotherapy uh, with fewer side effects. And um, so it's, it's for side effect management and it applies to anybody, any adult with any type of cancer. So it's, it's not a breast cancer specific book, um, but it is geared for anybody going through a difficult chemotherapy regimen. And I wrote the book at the insistence of a friend of mine because her sister was going through breast cancer treatment, including chemotherapy, uh, just behind me. She was maybe a few months behind me in her, in her treatment plan. And I was 
helping them out a lot, navigating several things, not functioning really as a, as their physician, but just as a sounding board for various mm -hmm. problems that came up and questions and a lot of side effect management. And her sister lives in, I think, Minnesota or Michigan or something. And so a lot of it was done on the phone, email, texting. I was taking pictures of little like lists that I would make or, um, and texting it and sending it. And, um, so that went on for several months and it, and I, and that was it over her treatment overlap with mine. And a few months after that, a similar situation happened with a neighbor of mine with another family member also living out of state. And so during that time when I was convalescing, this friend of mine, she said, you know, you have all of these materials and it's so helpful, these lists that you've sent us and these little tips and strategies, you really need to compile it and publish it as a little handbook. And, and that's how it started. And so you decide you're going to write a book. Like, what do you actually do? I, I took the, I, I printed out all the emails and I printed out all the texts and I took the piles of lists and, and things that I had written and, um, and other, other materials maybe that I had searched for, like if she had had a question and I happened to look something up in one of my medical, um, like medical resources and I printed it all out and I started to organize it by topic. So um, someone had asked me, uh, not too long ago, if I had written an outline for the book. And, and the outline, I, I want to say, I didn't write it sort of in a document, but I, but I actually almost physically made an outline because all of these physical materials, I, I started grouping them by topic. So the book is organized into um, nutrition and appearance and preventing infection and mental health. So as, as all of these tips and strategies, as, as I had little tidbits, I was organizing it into piles. So from there, then I started writing a document based on these um, tips and strategies and lists and things. And, um, and I would write a little bit again, I'm, I'm still not working. I'm, I'm, on disability at home, <laughs> can't walk very much yet. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would just, you know, work on it a little bit each day, probably an hour or two mm -hmm. um, most days. And the first draft I had in probably three months. Okay, that's fast. Um, but it wasn't very long. I mean, the, the first draft was only about half as long as the book is now. So the book now is 200 pages. So again, not long. It's, which was by design. I, I felt that the information, because there's tons of information out there for people. I mean, tons and tons of information. And as I was, as I was writing it, I was doing more information because I really struggled with why, why do we need this book? There is information. And the answer I came up with was one of the problems with the information that's out there is that either it's written very um, in a very complicated way, like the language is very complicated or the webs. If you're going to be, be looking online, 
the websites are a little difficult to navigate or, or there, or there's too much, like it's too dense. And when you're having chemo, I mean, I was, again, I was still exhausted. I was still tired, still having pain, side effects. And so I felt like if I'm too tough, if I go to this website and I'm overwhelmed, you know, mm-hmm. then the person on chemo, they're going to be overwhelmed by going to this website too. So I felt that my goal was to keep it concise, short, like little, little, little bites and tidbits mm-hmm. and give you just enough. And so, um, so that's why I, I, I continued on with it and felt that it would be a worthwhile addition if somebody wanted this type of resource. And can you give us some, just tell me about like your top tips that you want people to gain from reading the book, right? Like what, having gone through it and having talked to others and having written this book, what would you say are kind of like the top tips and things that people can do to get through chemo um, easily? Because what, I mean, I come in from my perspective and I tell patients, you know, the hard part is not getting the infusion. It's what happens in between the infusions, right? How you manage the side effects. Um, Are you feeling tired, but getting up and and going for a walk? Are you really focusing on eating, you know, protein rich, healthy fat foods that help with your recovery? So, but I am curious to hear about it from your perspective um, and having someone who's gone through it. Like, what would you say are the most helpful ways that someone can optimize their experience? Right. So I, I think I would break it down into two categories. I think Nausea is probably the number one physical symptom that's problematic still for, for those regimens that cause nausea and not all of them do. Um, but, but, um, especially the breast cancer regimens, um, nausea is still the big one. So, um, so if you look through the book, I, I have the, the most important strategies I have in breakout boxes labeled helpful hints. Mm -hmm. And so for nausea, one of my top uh, tips is to eat small protein rich meals, which is what you just said, and to set a timer to eat a snack. I think that's that's something that, that's something that I did because what I found is that I actually stopped, completely stopped feeling hungry. And even, even when I wasn't nauseous, I think I wasn't hungry for like nine months. I didn't, and I don't know whether that's a weird form of neuropathy, like if it knocks out your parasympathetic nervous system. I mean, I'm, I actually researched it and couldn't find any information on it, but because, uh, because I'm a nerd and I can't stop <laughs> looking stuff up, <laughs> but, but I, it took me a few days to realize that the absence of hunger was then going to make me not eat, which was then going to make me actually nauseous. And so I just set a timer. And I think that getting into a different mindset about eating is something that's really hard for people because we're normally very driven by our desires. We, we think of eating as, um, a pleasure thing, which I'm not going to say it's not because I love to cook. I love to eat normally, 
but this is not normalville okay so mm -hmm. so for people to see eating like eating needs to become your job and chemo needs to become your job i mean cancer treatment needs to become your job and the tone of the tone of braving chemo is to get people I, the whole beginning of the book is about mindset and I, I have a lot of tips about um, finding the right approach that, that you feel comfortable with that can sustain you for the length of your, not just your treatment, but your recovery, like basically like the rest of you. Okay. And um, listen, like listening to your body and, and uh, that kind of thing. But that includes, okay, you're going to have to eat because it's not your job. And so setting a timer is one of the little tips that can help you do that. Um, because if you wait till you feel hungry, you're not going to eat. I, I think that's so important, specifically what you said about mindset. Um, you know, a lot of people, I kind of joke around about this a little bit, but I tell my patients, you know, chemo is the elephant in the room and you don't want to ignore the elephant. Um, you know, I think the people that do better with treatment are the ones who say, look, I know that my life is changing right now and I have to accept the change. I have to figure out strategies that are going to let me cope with this change rather than avoiding the strategies and saying, nope, nothing's going to change because that's when we don't focus on what we need to focus on. Right. So another tip that, that I really recommend is to be gentle with yourself. And what I mean by that is, like you just said, when is to acknowledge that things are changing and just let, let that be and not put pressure on yourself to do it a certain way or be a certain way, be, be aware and allow things to change and, um, not get too attached to a certain expectation and set yourself up to, to feel like failure or to have guilt. And I, I think you mentioned earlier in the, in the discussion, something about um, self-imposed feelings or some, something along mm -hmm. those lines. Mm -hmm. And, and, and what I see that that is, is, um, you know, people can get caught up in, you know, everyone wants me to be strong, but you know what? I, I don't want to act like that. I don't, I don't want to put on a warrior face. Well, guess what? You don't have to, this is, you, you know, your, this is your experience. You can, you can choose how you go about it. And <laughs> Uh, it's your party. You can cry if you want to <laughs> sort of thing, you know, um, I feel that that being true to yourself is going to ultimately be more successful than than not doing that. So I, I and that's and that's what I mean by being gentle is being a, is is being true and being gentle and um, and finding a, a method of working through all those changes that works for you. I, I think that's really critical. You know, when people get diagnosed and you go online, you, you see all these things that 
should be doing, and again, should in, in very big quotation marks, or shouldn't be doing, and you know, people say all the time, oh my goodness, I, I had some sugar, or I had this, like, did this cause my cancer, am I causing the chemo not to work, and I think the key is really, really moderation, but being gentle with yourself, giving yourself grace mm-hmm. during a very challenging and difficult and life-altering time. Right. So, so the irony of me saying that is, is me saying that and then giving an entire book full of suggestions, right? But they're just that. It's not a prescription. Mm-hmm. It's, it's suggestions. And then I do have a whole, I actually have 40 pages of references, bibliography, because it is a science-based book. As a physician, that's, that is what I, ser- that is how I serve people is with my training, just as you do. And so I think, uh, you know, I can show them this is what has been shown to work and this is what is recommended. You know, if you eat healthy fat and protein, it will help you feel full longer. It will help you not lose weight. It'll, you know, things that are actually based in science. But then if somebody, if, if really truly the only thing they can eat and not vomit is macaroni, then eat the macaroni. (laughs) I say this all the time, whatever your comfort food is, just eat the comfort food. It's fine. Right. Yes. Yes. And, and I, along with that, I mean, I kind of, you know, I say like, I think sometimes mentally, you know, we just crave certain foods. And I think that's in that moment, that's what your brain needs. Right. So that's, that's health as well. Like, right. I think there's such a pressure, not even in cancer patients, which is in everyone, right. Especially with social media and, and everything being the way it is online to eat healthy all the time and to meal prep and to eat vegetables and, you know, that's all well and good, but you can also have a piece of chocolate cake once in a while. Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. I'm definitely guilty of it because I'll post pictures of the healthy stuff my I'm eating, I'm cooking for my family. and But, I, you know, I'm putting this out there. I eat chocolate as well. Yep. Yep. I think, I think my most recent <laughs> post was on sticky buns because it was National Sticky Bun Day. So <laughs> gotta have a sticky bun. Um, I, I feel like we could talk forever, but we do need to wrap up. So I'd love for you to talk to us about your recovery after the process. So yes, the healing that both your mind and your body go through when you're done, I think it's something we just don't talk about at all. Um, and it's such a big, big part of the journey. So it's always a work in process. I think I, um, I still... I still struggle with some long-term side effects. I still have some neuropathy that limits what I do. I don't, I don't run anymore because um, mm-hmm. that's a lot of um, impact on my feet. Um, I am able to work, so I'm very thankful for that. I need to sleep a little bit more than mm-hmm. I used to. Um, I also have osteoporosis. Thank you, cancer. <laughs> um, so I have had some fractures. So I also have, I also have osteoporosis and have had um, uh, fractures. So I am a frequent visitor to the physical therapist and managing that with medications. And so 
um, it's, it, it's, there are ups and downs. I think for me, um, the key is just to continue to work with my, my doctors, uh, in order to deal with many of the physical lingering side effects of treatment, mm -hmm. physical therapy is really important. And I did some courses of therapy early on, and then I just finished another course. And for me, that's just been so critical. And, um, I've, I've kind of had periods where I'm feeling better than worse again. And, and, and I would really recommend for people to see a physical therapist or a physiatrist, which is a physician, a rehab, a rehabilitation medicine, uh, physician specialist, because it's been so helpful. So for, on the physical side, I really promote that people do that. Um, and it, it can, it can help with so many physical symptoms that are left over from treatment. Um, and then on the mental side, I think also number one, it's for me, I think number one, exercise helps. So if I can get myself to exercise, it helps my mental state. Mm -hmm. So it's just, um, something that I have to always try to schedule into my day and remind myself to do it, fit it in. And then that helps me um, to feel good as well. And then to talk to my people, you know, my husband, my kids, my family, my friends, just to um, make sure that, uh, to let them know how I'm doing and see how they're doing because the whole family goes through cancer as well. I mean, that's so important. One of the things that is very often understated is we're, and I talked about this in my episode last week when I talked about chemo brain, but we're not, as oncologists, we're not very good at talking about side effects that we don't have quick fixes for, right? So mm. we can talk about nausea, we can talk about diarrhea. I mean, we know how to fix those. I mean, maybe we can't get rid of the symptoms altogether, but we know how to adjust medications and things like that. With, with the healing and, and the mental changes that people go through with with treatment for cancer, we're not very good at having those. Well, how are you handling it, right? Are you communicating with your family members? Because those are vague, but we can't offer a distinct help for those kind of things. But communication is so important. I think that a lot of patients, they, they're not, not that they're not able to communicate, but we almost think that other people should kind of know what they need, right? And until we communicate that and say, this is what I need or this is what I, I'm looking for, it's hard for our significant others to be able to know that. I agree with you. And something that I've become more aware of is that just as my husband or my brother or my even my good friend say does you know cannot actually be in my shoes even though we may be communicating a lot and sharing a lot of things mm -hmm. i it it sounds silly when i say it out loud but i realized only recently like within the last year i actually don't know what it's like to be them like mm -hmm. to support me yes and I, it sort of hit me and i'm like wow that must be terrible for them. And I just, and I think to some extent it's because when you're the cancer patient, man, you're just, 
you're up to your neck in it. And, and you, you literally, I mean, you're just fighting for your life. Like you, you just, I mean, I guess you kind of get a pass, right? So Mm -hmm. as the dust clears, I think as a, you know, I, I, it was like, I sort of like came to see it in a compassionate light maybe. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, but I really can't step in their shoes. Like I almost like, I, I need them to tell me because just as they cannot telepathically know what it's like for me, I, I can't telepathically know what it's like for them either. So. Yeah. They, and I think caregivers are sometimes afraid or, you know, significant others or family members are afraid to voice their concerns because they don't want to burden the patient. Right. So I, I think, you know, that's something that I would, you know, maybe, I don't know, I'm, I'm interested in learning more about it because I think that caregivers need to lean on other caregivers. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that a lot of that does happen and that there are venues and ways for that to happen, but, but it's, it's really important. There's not, there's not a lot of support. I mean, there's a lot of support for caregivers, but there's nowhere near enough support compared to what patients have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's tough. They go through different, they go through different things. A couple of weeks ago, I had um, on a caregiver, Janet Finaki and her husband sadly passed away from glioblastoma a couple of days ago. Um, and she talked about her experiences and how, you know, what her life has been like and the changes and and how she interacts with her kids. And I I mean, it's just such a unique perspective that we really don't hear about very often. Mm -hmm. It was very enlightening for me because we really focus as an oncologist, you do tend to focus more on the patient. Mm -hmm. So on that note, um, you know, is there anything that you want to share that we haven't talked about? Um, no, I think we pretty much covered it. Um, I really appreciate you bringing me on and for everything you do, um, educating patients and being a voice and helping to connect, um, cancer survivors and thrivers and patients and and caregivers together. It's really important. I, I appreciate it. It's, it's been really, I mean, so humbling and, and so incredible for me to kind of, one, get to know this community, but also, I mean, I've learned so much about what people really go through because in a 15-minute doctor visit, you, you can't hear all this, right? We've mm-hmm. talked for an hour and we've barely scraped the surface. Right. So I think there's just so much value in people just sharing their stories. And the more we, the more people share, the more information is out there for others. Definitely. Absolutely. Where can listeners find you if they would like to connect with you and where can they get your book? For sure. So I do have a website, which is beverlysavaletamd.com. And I talk about the book. I, I blog about once a month. You can sign up for my newsletter. I do have a, a giveaway every month. And this month, the giveaway is my book, plus a really nice breast cancer memoir by Sarah Leonage, who's a a UK author who wrote a breast cancer memoir. 
And the book itself is available ebook and print from Barnes and Noble online, Amazon, Kobo, which is a digital um, book platform, as well as Google Play for the ebook. Wonderful. And I will link to that so people can just click and purchase it if they want. Um, I know it's a really great, great resource. And, you know, you can never have, I mean, nothing beats a, a, someone's actual perspective, right? There's, there's nothing more genuine and honest than that. Right. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, taking some time out of your day to share your story. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And as always, if you are loving the show, please take a moment to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, as that is the best way to help me grow the show. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Dr. Toplinski, as well as on my website, www.interludecancerstories.com. Have a great weekend, and I will see all of you next week.